I encourage you to take your Bible and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. I also encourage you to please take out your sermon notes there. And I'm excited because we're going to get back to some expository preaching as we begin the study of 1 and 2 Peter. So we're going to be in this for quite a while into next year as well. We'll be doing this until we reach the Thanksgiving season and then into Advent. And then we'll pick it up after the first of the year. But today we're going to talk about a rock-solid foundation in times of uncertainty. And so we're going to introduce the book. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elected exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, hope is here. You know, in just a few days, we're going to turn the calendar over to September. Fall is going to be upon us. It's hard to believe this summer has gone by very quickly, at least from my perspective. Um, and so as we think about that, we want to think about and be reminded of the backdrop that we've been talking about before we get to 1 Peter chapter 1. A few weeks ago, I showed you a video, and I encourage you, if you didn't see it, Francis Chan. Go to YouTube, see Francis Chan Rope Illustration. And we talked about, from an eternal perspective, how do we look at things here on earth in light of what heaven is going to be about? And we spent time talking about heaven. And I tried to get as, as much detail as I could, but if you want more, read Randy Alcorn's 500-page book on heaven, and it'll give you a lot of perspective that I couldn't fit into the sermons. But I believe deeply that you and I were in the last stages of the end times. I could be wrong, but I believe that, you know, as we think about heaven, it's possible that we could be the ones that are raptured out in this time. As you look at Revelation and Joel and Daniel and Ezekiel and other prophets, their predictions, some of these things look like they're about to occur. So the rest of this fall, I want to focus on the hope that we have here and now, how we can thrive and not just survive in this culture that's growing even more hostile to God and more hostile to the gospel at a frightening pace. We need an anchor for our souls. We need to build our lives on that solid rock of the foundation of Jesus Christ instead of the shifting sands of group thinking and culture's opinion on morality. We need a rock-solid foundation in these times of uncertainty. And First and Second Peter speak as if they're writing these words, that they're writing them today, putting them on paper for the first time. That's what's so amazing about the Word of God. It transcends time, it transcends cultures, it transcends ethnicities, it transcends gender. It has the answer to the issues we're facing, even if it doesn't speak directly to those issues. We can go to the Word of God for anything, and the principles are there to help us to gain wisdom and insight as to what God would have us to do to develop our convictions through the Holy Spirit. The Word of God speaks today as strongly as it did in that first century, and the gospel of Jesus and God's Word are as relevant today as they've ever been. So let's take a 30,000-foot overview of the book of 1 Peter. And remember, background and context are always, always necessary as we read and apply God's word. So that's why we take some time at the beginning to really set in what is this book all about in, in its setting and how does it apply to us. 
So some fast facts about 1 Peter. First of all, before you fill in any blanks, I just want to let you know that this is a general letter. A general letter, there's pastoral letters, and then there's uh, letters that Paul wrote to specific churches like Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica. This is a general one to all believers at that time. It's part of a group called the General Epistles, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. Paul wrote two past, or three pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus as he was trying to bolster up and encourage Timothy as a young pastor. And we learn a lot from that as well for those of us who are in leadership and ministry. And so as we think about that, the first thing we need to note is the author of this book is the Apostle Peter. It says it right there in the first verses, right? It was written in classical Greek, but not in the common Koine Greek of the day. It was not in the language of the common person on the street. And so some people say, well, how could Peter have written this book? In fact, to be honest, in the Greek that used First Peter was different than the style of Greek language that was used in Second Peter. The reason we quest, some question his, his authorship is because he was a very uneducated fisherman. And so how could he write in the highest levels of Greek with proper grammar and syntax? His mother tongue most likely was Aramaic. Well, here's some reasons to support why Peter was the author of this book. He says so, number one, in verse one of the book. That's for one thing. First Peter 5, 2, he talks about shepherding the flock. And Jesus told Peter three times in John 21 to feed the flock. In 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, clothe yourself in humility, Peter does, possibly referring back to the time Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, casting all my cares upon him who cares for you. Might be a reference back to when Jesus in Matthew eleven thirty said, Come unto me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we see some of the, the tones from Jesus that impacted Peter as he wrote these epistles, these letters. In Peter's writing, you see similar grammatical structures as his preaching in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now often, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. So we know he was an uneducated fisherman. But to answer that question, note in, verse, in 1 Peter 5.12, he also had a secretary. You can look at the end of the book in 1 Peter 5.12. They had a secretary named Silvanus, or the shortened version of his name was Silas. It says there in 1 Peter 5.12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It could be that Silvanus aided in the syntax and grammar as he wrote down what Peter shared with him to write. It's also possible that Peter, after 30 years of ministry, learned and mastered the Greek language, and now he was educated and he was able to um, write in classical Greek. So the date that this was written was 64 to 65 AD. It was written before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. That was 70 AD. It was written while Nero burned Rome. Now, I don't know if you know back in history, but Nero, uh, he lusted to build new buildings and things. And as far as many people thought, Rome was pretty much completed. 
And so to satisfy his lust, he set Rome on fire. And he burned a significant part of that metropolitan city. And uh, he blamed it on the Christians. And the reason he hated the Christians is because of their association with the Jews. And so in that time, he destroyed the Roman culture that was recorded up to that time. He destroyed Rome's religion by burning to idols and places of idol worship. He left many homeless and helpless, hopeless. And it was during this time, tradition states that Peter was in Rome and he wrote his two letters that we have in the New Testament. So what's the background? What's the background of this letter? Well, while Jesus was on earth, it appears that Peter was the leader of the 12 apostles. If you look up in Matthew 10 and Mark 3 and Acts 1, Peter's always the first one listed in the group. He was a member of a family of fishermen. As we said, he's not well-educated, and he probably didn't go and study Hebrew in the synagogue like many other Jewish boys did. He lived in Bethsaida, which is near Capernaum. He was originally known as Simon or Simeon. That's his Hebrew name. And his brother Andrew in John 1 brought him to Jesus. And Christ later renamed Simon Peter. That's his name in the Greek or Cephas in the Aramaic which made his name mean stone or rock. And it was written from Rome, most likely. It was written from Rome, most likely. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was thought that later on in Peter's ministry, he traveled from Jerusalem to Rome. And Peter mentions Babylon. What is Babylon and where is it? In 1 Peter 5.13, he says this, She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, send you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, implying that he's in what he's referring to as Babylon. Well, one possibility was written from an outpost in northern Egypt, a very remote, distant area, but there's no reason to believe that Peter ever was there. Another possibility why Peter used the, the word Babylon is to describe where he might have wrote the book from the old city of Babylon in the Mesopotamian region, but it's doubtful because Mark and Silvanus and Peter were never seen in that place by tradition, and it was such a distant uh, place from where they were. But most likely, Peter was using Babylon as a code word for Rome because he didn't want to identify where he was directly for fear of persecution. You know, as we sit here today, we think about what Afghani Christians are going through we can only imagine. We can't even fathom what it must be like. I was listening to some things as I was traveling this week, and uh, one ministry talked about how the Taliban are knocking on doors and grabbing people's phones, and if they find Bible apps on it, then you are tortured, beaten, and maybe executed. Others have received letters from the Taliban saying that they know that they're Christians and they've been watching them for a period of time. And so can you imagine the fear that they're facing currently, persecution. And that's similar to what Peter was experiencing as he kind of disguised where he was. Just remember that God's providence in Peter's life, remember that Peter was very nearly killed in the early days of the church, but God miraculously saved him and preserved him to write these two letters. Another thing we need to point out is Peter was married. He was married. This is very controversial for the Catholic Church. They believe that he was the first pope and that they would claim that he wasn't married and that that's why the priests are to be celibate. But 
It's obvious in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. And immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law, Simon being Peter, lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now a prerequisite to having a mother-in-law is you are married, right? And so it's apparent there. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, it says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? The apostles brought their wives along with them as they did ministry. Peter led the church in Jerusalem. He was the first leader, the first pastor of that mega church. It was in the thousands as it grew. So he led the church in Jerusalem. And then Peter ministered to both Jews and Gentiles alike. This letter was written to born-again believers scattered throughout the five Roman provinces, which today make up the northern part of Turkey. And this letter was written to the Jews and the Gentile believers alike, as you'll see as we go through the letter verse by verse. And the last thing under these facts or under this point, Peter was martyred outside of Rome. He was out, martyred outside of Rome. When it came time to execute him, historians tell us that he told his executioners that he wasn't worthy of being crucified like Jesus Christ. And so he requested to be crucified upside down. And that was the way that he gave his life for the gospel. Who was it written to? It was written to the Jews and Gentiles who were scattered. Verse 1 says they were dispersed. And it lists out the places that they were. And the theme of this great book is to educate and challenge the Christ follower how to live holy lives that thrive in a culture of hostility in order that the grace of God would be revealed in their lives. And as that statement stays up on the screen, some purpose behind that, the purpose for this theme. One is that as you live and serve Christ, that you will not lose hope. Our hope is in a person who has demonstrated his love for us on Calvary's cross and who's a constant in our lives. We have a hope that's opposite the world's hope. The world's hope is optimistic for things or circumstances that will turn out for their good with nothing to base it on. It's based on fortune, fate, and luck. Hal Lindsey, who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth and Satan is Alive and Well, said this, man can live without about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Hope is a very, very important thing, especially uh, in our culture as we're dealing with this turbulent time of uncertainty. Another thing that's important about our theme to educate and challenge the Christ father to live holy lives, to thrive in a culture of hostility, is that we will not become bitter because of the pain of suffering. That with this grace from God helping us to thrive in a culture of hostility, we learn to have a deeper trust in God. And we hope and look forward to the eminent return of Jesus Christ. He's coming soon, I believe. So we must understand that this book was written for ambassadors in a foreign land, and that applies to us. We're in that situation here as well. We're citizens of heaven. Let us be reminded from this book that as we live the Christian life in obedience and victory, while under duress, a Christ follower can actually evangelize a hostile world with the gospel of Christ. Sometimes persecution and suffering will squeeze out 
the grace and the gospel of Christ as we share what we are going through, but we have that deep, intimate trust with our Savior. Think about the testimony of the Roman centurion as he witnessed the excruciating crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. This was his testimony after he witnessed the six hours of agony. In Matthew chapter 27, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So what are our key verses? There's two key verses here. 1 Peter 3.15, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, but in your hearts it says, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love how he adds those things in, gentleness and respect. And a verse we've already looked at, but this is a key verse as well. 1 Peter 5, 12, the second part of this verse by Silvanus, who wrote this book, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. And here's the key, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We're to stand firm in the grace of God. As John Piper wrote, the men's group did a couple years ago, that book, Future Grace. Every morning we wake up, we have a fresh new amount of grace to live out our lives. Here's the outline for the book of 1 Peter. I encourage you to, after we fill this out, maybe keep this in your Bible as we go through this study, but the customary greeting as we shared in our scripture reading. But then we're going to look at next week when we're out there at Veterans Memorial Park talking about chosen to be born again. And we'll spend several weeks on the benefits of being a believer in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about being commanded to change our conduct. You know, as a believer in Christ, old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Sin and our bad habits need to be continually dropping off in our life. And he's going to help us to uh, deal with some of that. And then Peter's going to talk about the care for when you face persecution, where you go, how you deal with injustices, and things like that. And then called to a new responsibility, and then closing recognitions. That's the, the brief outline of this book. So with this introduction to the letter of 1 Peter, I want to ask you and leave you with three questions to think about as you go home and ponder them these, this week. I want you to pray about these questions, pray them through, and be honest with your answers. I've been thinking about this a lot. How much do you want? I'm going to ask you three questions. How much do you want? How much of God do you want? How much of God do you want? Some people, they want God in te teaspoons or tablespoons to bail them out when they're in trouble. And they go to him with their needs. And sometimes they look at God like a vending machine. How about some of us? How about, do we want larger amounts of God when it means making major changes in our life? Or maybe if we choose to follow God in this way, I'm going to face some difficulties at my job because of my positions and convictions on things. But as we do that, we grow in our intimacy and we hunger and thirst for his righteousness in our lives. The question is, how much of God do you want? How much are you willing to pay to receive all that God is into your life? In Psalm 24, the psalmist said this, the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Verse three gives us conditions of what some of the things we need to do, the personal responsibility to get more of God in our life. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. And I say this in a way to point to you, but notice when you point to somebody, the thumb points back at you. As we talk about these things, it applies to me and to all of us. Are you and I hungering for intimacy with God and willing to obey and sacrifice beyond our comfort level to grow to that level? You see, what I found in my life is the more you seek God in holiness, the more difficult it seems to be in many ways because A, Satan wants to distract you, but you know what? Every time the closer you to God you get, the more he reveals sin in your life. And guess what? We don't like to deal with that, right? We don't want to get deal with the, some of the more baggage, the deep baggage in our life. But that's what this psalm is saying. And are you and I willing to adjust our lives to who God is in order to know him more? I don't know about you, but I want to experience God in new and fresh and rich ways each and every week of my life. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then in Ephesians, he talks about this even more. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you and I the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that we may know him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And what is that hope? The riches of his glorious inheritance. And here's our responsibility in his holy people. We gotta be holy and righteous people to know God better, to grow, to experience him in big and wide ways. So here's the question, are you hungering and thirsting after God? How much of God do you want? Are you satisfied with what or are you just satisfied with what you know about God in our spiritual life and want to ex experience him more? You see, the more we obey and sacrifice to know and experience God in new and fresh ways, the more people will see the glow of Christ in our lives. And I think that's so important in this time of uncertainty that we live in. So what will you do this week to go deeper in your walk and your intimacy with God? What can you sacrifice to spend more time in relationship with him? Second of all, how much? How much of the church do you want? Are you hungering to be with God's people in worship and fellowship and studying of God's word together? I think many of us are. Many of you are very faithful to being here. Are we taking personal responsibility to be here to share our part in the body of Christ? Some of us are the hands. Some of us are the feet. Some of us are the fingers. Some of us are the toes. And I don't know about you, years ago when I did a lot of running, um, I remember one time my right calf muscle was really bothering me on a five-mile run, and I stopped and stretched, and I kept running like an idiot because what happened next was the, right, the left leg started creating a problem for it. And you can only go so long on an injured leg or without a part of your body. And that's why it's important that we gather together that we come together, 
So are you taking personal responsibility to serve using your spiritual gifts and your natural talents that God has blessed you with? One of the most tragic events in American history occurred in New York City in 1964. A young woman from Queens named Kitty Genovese was stabbed to death. She was chased by an assailant and attacked three times on the street over a period of a half an hour. That alone is tragic enough, but it happened while 38 of her neighbors watched from their upstairs windows of this high rise, and not one of them did anything to aid her at this time. They didn't come to a rescue. They didn't shout out or call for help. They didn't even bother to pick the phone up and call the police. Shocking, isn't it? It's hard to imagine people acting that way, but we pass it off as saying, well, that was back then, that was New York City. But it was obviously maybe a one-time deal, they say, but it's not like the norm. But that's where the story says it's, we're wrong. Situations like that of Kitty Genovese have happened over and over in cities and towns all over the land. Two New York City psychologists, one from Columbia University and one from NYU, decided they wanted to dig deeper into what they called the, quote, bystander problem. And a fascinating set of studies outlined by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point, these two psychologists decided that they would stage a series of emergencies of differing kinds in different settings to see who would come and help. They found out that one single factor determined whether people would respond to a need. It wasn't the severity of the crisis or the degree to which the person screamed or called for help. It wasn't even the characteristics of the people in the experiment whether they were young or old, male or female, black or white. What mattered was how many witnesses there were to the event. The more people that were around, the less people responded. Folks, we have to come to church and we have to view our personal responsibility to be contributors, to volunteer and be involved, as many of you do, to give of ourselves and ministry for other people, we need to be here so we can develop deeper bonds of friendship with one another. And I believe Christians and the world are starving for those relationships more than ever. We need to ask what we can do for our church instead of what our church can do for us. You see, many of us, we're the solution and answers to prayer for many of the needs in our church. When I think about this, I think of a story that occurred in World War II. It talked about how there was this church that had a statue of Christ and the church was bombed. And the soldier came in later after the bombing, an American soldier, and he saw the statue of Christ where his arms and his feet were broken off because of the bomb blast. He took that statue and put it up against the wall and he tried the best he could to repair it, but to no avail. He was unable to put it back together. But then he got this idea and he took a piece of paper and put it at the bottom of the statue of Christ. And it was as if Christ were saying these things. I have no hands but your hands and no feet but your feet. We all need to remind ourselves of that. How much of this local church do you want? We gain from what we contribute to it. Satan and his demons are committed to discrediting the church that Christ is building and are you and I contributing to that cause? Satan's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He loves to find Christians who lives, whose lives are inconsistent with the word of God. And then he parades those kinds of Christians out into our world of unbelievers to show that the church is filled with hypocrites. 
I might add this current cultural situation, he's doing a fantastic job at what he's doing. And as Christ followers and faithful church attenders, we have to stand strong against the enemy. And how do we silence the critics? By the power of our holy and righteous living. Robert Murray McShane, a minister in Scotland in the 1800s, said this as a pastor. He said, the greatest need of my people as a pastor is my personal holiness. Take heed to yourself. Your soul is your first and greatest care. Keep up close communion with God. Study likeness to him in all things. Man, what a great quote. A lot to think about there. As we seek intimacy with God and we seek to be a contributor to God's church, as we live holy lives, it will impact the world in a great way. The last question for you today to take home and chew on and ponder is this. How much of relationships with others do you want? How much of relationships with others do you want? Pause and reflect on that. When was the last time you sat down with someone and had a conversation? You and I, in this current time, we need to reach out to those in the church and spend some time in quality conversations together. I believe we've lost that art of conversation. And so we need to take the initiative. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. I used to teach my kids, if you want to have friends, you've got to go out there and make the effort to be a friend to them, to find out what they're interested in, what their likes are, see if you have common interests with them. You can't just sit back and just think it's going to happen. A man who has friends must show himself to be friendly, but there's a friend, Jesus Christ, who sticks closer than a brother. I think of some people in our church. There's a, a lady in our church that uh, has ladies who go to our church who are believers over to her house once a month just to sit and drink coffee and have conversation. We have an opportunity Tuesday night at Starbucks for cafe gals to go and to meet and just to have a time of conversation. I think a men's group. We spend a lot of time talking about our lives in men's group on Thursday night and in our prayer requests and uh, men's breakfast for fellowship. These are all important things, and that's why throughout, underneath all the things we're going to do this fall, we're going to emphasize community and conversation building through fire and fellowship, and next week at the picnic where you can sit down and enjoy fellowship together. But what do you do when you meet to have a conversation? Do you talk about spiritual things? Do you talk about positive things? Talk about things that you've learned that may be used to encourage or build someone else up. Talking can change your perspective on life and how you perceive your circumstances in life. I had a conversation with someone and they told me something about someone and what they were doing and gave me a real negative perspective. And then later on, somebody else shared something about the situation and it changed my whole perspective because I didn't have all the information. And that's why conversation is so important. So we need to take time and invite people. As one person in our church shared with me, we shouldn't worry if our house is all picked up and perfect and neat before we invite people over. Look for people who are open and receptive. And after a while, if the relationship is not clicking, not every relationship is meant to be, maybe move on to someone else. But find someone that you can build a relationship with. And when you do, be a faithful friend. Be a faithful friend. This thing of sharing life on life is messy grace. We're going to share some messy things, but we're going to walk through this life together. 
And I mentioned community in the second question there. Fellowship means two men in a boat. But it goes much deeper than that. It's more than just sharing a meal together. In some cases, it's sharing our lives with one another, as many of you who've been in our church for 40, 50 years know. You've shared your lives together. Notice the intimacy of community the early believers had and how they did life together. As we close today, take your Bible and turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what the local church should look like. This is how the early believers came together facing persecution. Back in that day, if you were baptized, you pretty much lost your family, lost your livelihood, lost your social connection. And so they really had to come together. But Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted or they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44 is key. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were unified. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people in the church. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A transforming church is one that loves one another, has a sincere, deep commitment to one another. And that overflows out into the world when they see that kind of love that Jesus commanded, our love for one another, it makes it contagious for them to want to know what is so different about our faith. Our transition here is every one of these questions should bring to mind that to receive from the Lord, you have to first give to the Lord, to sacrifice, to obey, to commit to his church and share our lives and relationship with one another. So our key thought, our takeaway today of this, if you get nothing else out of the sermon, think about this, how can we stop being a consumer Christian and be a committed contributor to the faith. I confess there's times in my life I'm, I'm a consumer Christian. There's all kinds of great podcasts and all kinds of great things out there, and that's good. But are we giving? Are we serving? Are we learning things so we can impart that knowledge to others in the process of making better disciples for Christ? As we close today, I encourage you to just think about your heart and life and ponder, how much of God do you want? How much of the church do you want? How much of relationships do you want? And what are you willing to give in order to grow in these areas and find joy as you give? Let's bow for prayer. As we close today, I hope that you ponder those things in your heart. Only each one of us can answer them to God. There's no way I can know your heart. There's no way I can measure where you are in your relationship with God, but you can. And so I pray you'll take a few moments to think about that. How much of God do you want and how much are you willing to adjust your life to see God reveal more of himself in your life. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the book of 1 Peter. We're excited to go through it verse by verse. Lord, help us. Help us to take our eyes off our circumstances 
and lift our eyes up to you, Lord, above the hills, the maker of heaven and earth, as the psalmist said. Help us to not live in light of our circumstances. Help us to learn how to be content in those circumstances and how to rise above them and thrive because of our deep faith and our commitment to you. Lord, help us this week. Help us this week to be challenged, to think how we can be better contributors to the faith. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.